0: Good morning again. It's good to see each one of you here. Maybe a bit fewer in number this morning, but my Bible tells me where two or three are gathered together, there the most important person is in our midst. Amen. So we come here and we're thankful for Jesus today, and we're also thankful for His Word. And um, we've been talking a bit about the Word of God together, and we're going to continue just telling a little bit about the history of the the Bible we hold in our hands this morning. Um, we've talked about the Old Testament, how the critics of the Old Testament were, they were um, satisfied that, uh, in fact, there could no proof be brought that the Old Testament had been tran- transmitted down to us through the ages um, in an uncorrupted form. We talked about how a discovery by a little shepherd boy along the... The hills around the Dead Sea um, showed that the Old Testament scrolls um, that we had uh, were actually intact and accurate. We're talking now about the New Testament and how in the middle of the 19th century it was commonly believed that the New Testament had been tampered with, with rash hands, that it hadn't been really the work of those authors that that the, the names of the books indicated, that it had been... Um, modified by those who wanted to consolidate power, etc. So we talked about how a German professor made it his life goal to find more ancient manuscripts than uh, they currently had at the time. This was the early 18... uh, It was actually 1839 when he graduated from the University of Leipzig. And uh, Tischendorf, Konstantin Tischendorf, made it his goal to find... Uh, more accurate copies of the New Testament. Last week we saw how there were four manuscripts that were available at the time. None of them were really complete, and um, none of them were satisfying to be able to corroborate each other and to be able to confirm the accuracy of the New Testament. So Tischendorf made that trek over to the Sinai Peninsula. You remember he arrived at the St. Catherine's Monastery, and he put his letter in that basket they lowered down to him, They read the letter of invitation, which he had received, and being satisfied he was a bona fide visitor, they lowered the basket with a crossbar for him to hold on to, and then they winched him back up to the top of that cliff, and he went into the monastery, and there he found an amazing assortment of old, moldy manuscripts, piles of them. In fact, the librarian, or the monk that was serving as the librarian at the time, he he told Constantine that just a few months before, there was a big pile of manuscripts they thought really weren't worth anything, and they had burned them. Constantine began searching through these manuscripts. He ended up finding several. About, I think there was about uh, thirty-nine, as I remember, forty, somewhere around forty manuscripts that he took with him back. He was able to take with him back uh, to Germany, and he began uh, studying and comparing these manuscripts and. He thought that he came up with something a little more accurate perhaps than the, the Greek uh, manuscripts that they had uh, to that time. And he published his Greek New Testament. But he wasn't satisfied because none of those, those uh, manuscripts were really so ancient to have authority. And he thought somewhere there's got to be older manuscripts that date back before the 9th or 10th century. And so uh, Constantine went back to St. Uh, Catherine's twice. He went back in 1853 and again back in 1859. In the visit of 1859, Tischendorf, Dr. Tischendorf was just about to finish and give up. He said, I'll spend three more days here, he wrote to a friend. And after those three days, I'll leave and I'll go home. I'll give up finding that manuscript that I've been looking for. And in those three days, God somehow opened Constantine's mind and he was able to find a old Greek manuscript that contained both the, the Old Testament and the New Testament, the most complete manuscript of the Bible that Tischendorf had seen in his, in his research to this time. And he knew he was on to something. He knew he was on to something, and so as he compared these uh, the, the indications, he believed this was perhaps the oldest manuscript also, not just the most complete, but the oldest manuscript he had yet found there at, at St. Catherine's. Now, the monks in St. Catherine's were not quite so congenial as they had been in 1844, um, his first visit to the monastery. And then he had, they had let him take the manuscripts and return back to Germany. This time his, his trip had been financed by the Tsar of Russia. And so he convinced these monks that he, they could loan the, the, the manuscripts to the Tsar of Russia. And um, if you're following along in your notes here, the copy of the manuscript which uh, Tischendorf found on this trip in 1859... Was uh, became known as the Codex Sinaticus. That's the Sinai, S-I-N-A-I, like the mountain of Sinai, with T-I-C-U-S at the end. Codex Sinaticus. They let Tischendorf take this Codex Sinaticus as a loan to the Tsar, and uh, somehow um, Tischendorf never really remembered that was part of the arrangement because he presented it as a gift to the Tsar when he got back to to Russia. And there it stayed in a museum in St. Petersburg. Of course, as the next 80 years would pass by, 75 years or so would pass by, the politics in Russia changed considerably from the Tsars, the Bolshevik Revolution, and then the Communist Revolution. And in the early uh, 20th century, the early 20th century, in the 1930s, the Soviets were actually looking to sell this manuscript. Now, the um, curator of the British Museum in, in London found out that this would be for sale. And um, they wanted 200,000 pounds, was the original asking price. He offered them 100,000. Actually, he offered them 60,000. And they... Uh, they eventually came down to 100000 but he didn't have any money. This was in the middle of the Depression, and uh, there wasn't a lot of money. The government didn't have a lot of money. The, the, uh, the Church of England became interested in helping, but they didn't have much money. Finally, the, the British government said, We will give £50,000 if the general population will raise £50,000. And literally, they went door-to-door asking for donations... In the, during the Depression, and uh, they raised the 50,000 pounds. The government matched it. And this manuscript, the Codex Sinaiticus, it arrived in London, or arrived at the British Museum, in a taxi, escorted by a reporter for the um, Daily Express. No one really realized how, or very few people realized how valuable this, in fact, was. The Codex Sinaiticus, we now believe, is one of and the most complete of the manuscripts that were copied back in AD 31 Now that goes back quite a ways, doesn't it? The story is something like this. Um, Constantine was a new Christian emperor. And Constantine, one of the things that he uh, did, he, he wanted to settle some of the disputes within Christianity. And um, one, uh, uh, at, uh, at some of these... Councils which Constantine called... One of the, the subjects of discussion was the canon of Scripture. And uh, the canon of Scripture was already pretty much decided at that time. It, we, it's really not true, as some people might claim, that Constantine decided which books of the Bible would be included. Um, Constantine, in fact, simply brought together the, the leading uh, church uh, theologians and scholars... And they, they were in agreement. And so this uh, canon of Scripture being closed, in Constantine's mind at least, required or p- should precipitate a publishing of the Bible, the official document of the Christian faith. And so Constantine himself agreed to pay for 50 copies. That doesn't sound like much in today's language with printing presses. But remember... This would be an entire Old Testament and an entire New Testament written by hand. Every little jot and every little tittle, every little dot in the Hebrew, every little preposition in the Greek, it all had to be done by hand. Fifty copies was a lot of work. And those 50 copies were um, done in Caesarea, where Eusebius, um, who was responsible for the copying, was uh, located. And Caesarea was the home of the uh, the Codex Sinaiticus, for probably several hundred years, or at least a couple hundred years, until the Syrians would take over, and we now believe that when the Syrians took over Caesarea, the Christians fled, and they took with it this scroll or this manuscript, which had been copied at the at the request of Constantine by the scribes of Eusebius. They took it with them to what they thought would be a safe place, a refuge, Saint Catherine's Monastery. We talked last week or week before about how. God oversaw, I believe, God oversaw the affairs of the monastery at St. Catharines. So that in all those nearly um, 1,500 years before this manuscript was found, uh, since it had been established, the monastery of St. Catharines had never been pillaged or, or overrun by any of the competing factions, political factions, in the Middle East or in that time. They were kept by God. And I believe one of the reasons... Was it so we could have this manuscript brought down to us today? So the Codex Sinaiticus was one of those 50 copies. We would also, um, we, it is also considered that the Codex um, Vaticanus, the copy of the scriptures which is in the Vatican, which uh, you remember Tischendorf had been allowed to look at for six hours, um, was also one of those 50 manuscripts from 331. It, however, it was not as complete. The, the interesting thing that we should notice here, if you, uh, if you are following along, it says none of the differences between these ancient manuscripts and the later versions of the Bible in any way change the meaning or teaching of the Christian faith. And Sir Frederick Kenyon, the uh, prolific writer who was a curator of the British Museum in London, he wrote the following in 1939. Our Bible as we have it today represents as closely as may be the actual words used by the authors of the sacred books. So once again, we see that the discoveries made in caves and even in monasteries by shepherd boy and by professor, they confirm the authenticity and the accuracy of the word of God. Can you say amen? Isn't it good to know? But you know, the Bible critics weren't finished yet. They said, yes, that takes you back to 331. But that still doesn't prove that the disciples of Jesus in the first century wrote those books. And they were confident of one thing. They were confident that there would never be manuscripts found earlier than 331. The reason they were confident was because the material written that the Bible was written on prior to this was of a fragile nature. And could not possibly have endured the test of time. And so the critics came back to fight another day. And we'll be looking next time we're together at how God had an answer for that as well. How God would not allow the Bible to be attacked without an answer. Well, we've been talking as we consider the Word of God and our relationship to the Word of God. We've been talking about how the Word of God is inevitable. Remember? God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. When God says something, it happens. Even though Balaam didn't want what God's word said, God's word still was true. And um, we can accept that no matter how much we may want to change it, it's better just to surrender to the word of God. We've also looked at the relevance of the word of God. Peter said, though all men should deny you I will never deny you. He tried to apply Jesus' words to everyone except who? Except himself. And so as he applied the word of God to everyone around him except his own heart, he actually set himself up for his denial of Jesus. We also have been looking at how how the word of God is, uh, is... is powerful and, and able to actually teach us the things that we need to know in our daily lives if we will just apply the Word of God to ourselves. Today, we're going to be looking at the stillness of the Word. And before we open the Word of God, I want to just bow our heads for another word of prayer. Father, we are grateful that you've given to us these pages of your will transmitted to us today. We marvel that some 2,000 years nearly after you walked on earth, that you still speak to us through these words recorded, inspired by your Holy Spirit and brought down to us, preserved for us by your grace and by your power. And Lord, help us to be more faithful as we consider your word speaking to us today. Help us to apply it to our lives that we might experience the power of your word convert our lives today, and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. I'd like for you to turn your Bibles to the book of 1 Kings. We're going to be looking this morning uh, briefly at the story of Elijah, and um, the story we're going to focus on is in 1 Kings chapter 19, so if you get there, uh, just say amen, and we'll begin reading the story just a few highlights and then contemplating its meaning for us today first kings chapter 19 are we there the bible says that ahab told jezebel all that elijah had done and how he had slain all the prophets with the sword and jezebel sent a messenger unto elijah saying so let the gods do to me and more also if i make not your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time now you remember the story right this is after Mount Carmel. After Elijah has prayed his prayer and he has seen fire come down from heaven, he, he, he begins praying for rain, remember? And seven times the servant went to see if there was any rain. Elijah kept sending his servant back to check the, check the coast, make sure there's not rain coming. And finally, the seventh time, the servant came back to there's a little tiny cloud. I can just see it. It's gathering over the sea. And Elijah, in faith, told the king... Uh, you better get back to your home because it's about to really rain. And it rained so hard, the horses couldn't even see the road they were walking on. The prophet of God literally ran in front of the king's chariot and led the king back into his home. Now, what a, what a tremendous end of a day. I mean, end of three and a half years. You could end your life at this point, and you'd have quite a biography, don't you think? I mean, this is quite an accomplishment. And Elijah, probably tired, he lays down to rest. And uh, when Elijah got back, and, and um, who did he talk to? Who did Elijah tell the events of the day, according to First Kings 19 and uh, verse 1? Ahab, I'm sorry, told Jezebel. And um, when Jezebel heard what what had happened to the prophets of Baal, she was not a very happy wife, queen. And she sent a message to Elijah. And she said, by tomorrow this time, you're going to be in the same condition as those prophets of Baal. And what happened to Elijah? The Bible says that as this message was delivered to Elijah... Fire came down from heaven and killed the messenger. Is that what the Bible says? Does it it say that an armed guard appeared or angels appeared around Elijah to safeguard him and keep him from any danger? What what happened? Elijah gets this message. In my mind, my imagination at least, maybe, um, Elijah is sort of awakened from a, a, a slumber which he's fallen into after having an exhausting day and running all the way back in front of the horses through the rainstorm, my mind's imagination sees him sort of awakened from a rest and all of a sudden he getting this message and not knowing exactly what to do with it, Elijah becomes discouraged. That's what happened. What we wouldn't expect to happen happened, right? Right? I mean, in hindsight, looking at the story, how could anybody be discouraged after what Elijah had seen? I mean, how could he be discouraged? Fire not only destroyed the sacrifice and the wood, it burned up the stones and even burned the water. Now, water doesn't burn and fire doesn't come down from heaven. I mean, there was no reason for anyone to not be absolutely assured God was with him. In hindsight, we look back and we think, wow. How could Elijah be discouraged? The Bible says in verse 3 that when Elijah saw that, he arose and ran for his life. Can you imagine? The same Elijah that walked into King Ahab's court and told him, It's not going to rain until my word because you've forsaken the God of heaven and you're worshiping Baal. That same Elijah is now running from a woman. Scared. For his life after three and a half years. Now, let's just let's just we're we're going to look at a couple of questions here. And I I put these down for you to have in mind as we go through the story, because we're going to hopefully by the end, we're going to find answers to all of these. Why was Elijah so discouraged? First of all, where was he running? What did he hope to find there? Those may be um, related questions. As we see where he's running, we might help to, it might help us to understand what he was looking for and how did God de- deal with the discouraged prophet? Those are the four questions that I hope we can answer in the next couple minutes that we spend together. We see that Elijah was discouraged the onset of that king because of Jezebel's message, but there must have been another reason. So we're going to look at the Elijah's life up to this time. I, I want us to consider the fact, or the, the possibility, we'll call it a possibility to begin with, the possibility that Elijah had become so accustomed to seeing miracles that maybe he had come to rely upon them, to trust in them. Maybe he wanted a religion, a, a spirituality, which was, which was exciting because of what he had experienced. Let's just consider what he had experienced over the last three and a half years. Again, as I looked at these stories again and again, I was amazed. If only one of these things had happened to me, I would think that I would have my faith settled for all time. I mean, just one of these experiences which Elijah had would be enough to make, if it were known, make people think that you had a... An incredible walk with God and relationship with God. And in fact, it would should, should show you that your faith was founded in a God that was very real. Let's look really quickly. 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 1. Just thumb back a couple of chapters and we're going to see how the story began. And we're going to see really briefly what Elijah has experienced these three and a half years till now. 1st uh, Kings 17 and verse 1 Elijah the Tishbite who was of the inhabitants of Gilead said unto Ahab as the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand there shall not be dew nor rain these years but according to my word now Elisha uh, uh, the Tishbite remember he was not from a powerful powerful community he was not from he was from a little village right he was from a little mountain town and here he's going and talking to the king and he's saying until my word it's not going to rain and what happened the bible says in james 5 verse 16 the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much and then it goes on and says that elijah was a man of like passions such as we are and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it rained not on the earth for the space of three and a half years remember that so first of all it didn't rain Second, we see in verse 16 of the same chapter, remember when he, oh, verse 6 of the same chapter, remember when he fled and went to hide, he couldn't go home, he was there by the brook Kareth, and there we see that the uh, ravens brought him bread and flesh in the morning, and bread and flesh in the evening, and he drank the water from the brook. brook, remember that? So here we find that Elijah is fed miraculously by the birds. Now, birds don't usually do this. Have you ever been to the maybe, maybe downtown some city and you see the pigeons? What happens when you throw a little bit of grain out? Do they all try to give to each other and share, enjoy equally? No, birds don't just take their food and give it to someone else, but they did here. Yeah, they'll take it right out of your hand. They were putting it in Elijah's hands. They were giving him the food. A miracle. Remember, after the brook dried up, God led him to the widow of Zarephath, right there in the kingdom of Jezebel's father. And there, you remember, the widow and her son were about to eat their last meal. They had only a little oil and a little flour left. And the Bible says that Elijah, when he got there, he said, make my meal first, now, that was an exercise of faith for this woman to do that, but she did. And as a result of her faith and Elijah's word, every time she went to make a little more food, what was there? A little more oil and a little more flour. God, for a space of time, it, was a, a, it wasn't just a few days. I mean, it was weeks and months that this little bit of oil and flour never failed. It kept feeding Elijah and the widow and her son. A miracle, right? Wouldn't you be excited if God worked miracles like that for you? I would. We continue on. We find out that she, her son became sick and died, and Elijah took him up to his room and prayed, and the Bible says he revived. He raised a boy from the dead. That's a miracle, right? Amazing. And then, of course, we come down to Mount Carmel. He has fire coming down from heaven to destroy the altar and the sacrifice and the water even that's in the trench that's been poured over the sacrifice. And then he prays, seven times sending that servant, and the seventh time there's a little cloud, and it does rain just like he says it will. I mean, what a life story, right? What a biography. What a... An amazing, I mean, you could almost write a Hebrews 11 just on Elijah, right? And then we come to chapter 19, and he runs. He runs. Let's look and see where he is running. Pick up the story with me, First Kings chapter 19, and we're going to look at verse 4. He's left his, his a servant basically on the edge of Judah's property, territory, Beersheba. And he himself has left the promised land. He's left the territories given to the tribes of Israel, and he's headed back across the desert. You can sort of imagine he's heading back towards Egypt. The way the children of Israel have come to the promised land, he's, he's heading back across the desert. The Bible says that he went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might, what? Die. And said, it is enough. It's enough. Basically, I think in our common vernacular, we would say, I've had it. I've had it. Take my life. I am not better than my father's. The Bible says, As he lay and slept under the juniper tree, behold, an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake baking on the coals and a cruise of water at his head. And he ate and drank, and he laid down again. Now, I don't know how long Elijah was sleeping. I think he must have been very tired. Don't you get that picture? This is a man who has had quite, a, quite an experience. He thought after three and a half years of no rain, after it rained, there would be this tremendous revival instead he was met by jezebel he runs a day's journey into the wilderness he hasn't who knows when he ate last i mean we don't know but it could have been several days right he's hungry he's tired he lays down to rest and what does god know that he needs two things that he needed did god just come and start counseling him elijah you know you really shouldn't be depressed is that what god did Now, there's a time for that, right? There's a time for God to reason with him. And he's going to come to that time. But Elijah was not... uh, God knew that Elijah needed more than just some good words. There were some physical reasons for Elijah to be feeling the way he was feeling, right? He was depressed because he was exhausted and he hadn't eaten. And so God knew that he needed, needed two things. He needed food and he needed rest. So the Bible says that God would provide both for him. He wakes him up out of his sleep and he says, look, rise and eat. And notice what he said. I I like the way the angel said it. Um, Well, it's the second time he comes back and he says to uh, to Elijah, arise and eat because the journey is too great for thee. It's too great for you. You need some divine help along the way. Elijah ate. He went back to sleep. The angel comes back, wakes him up again, feeds him. Wouldn't you like to know what exactly it was that the angel was feeding him? Maybe a recipe or something? Um, I assume angels are good cooks. Elijah seems to have done pretty well by this food because the Bible says, I'm not, it's not my words, right? But the Bible says in verse 8 that he arose and. Ate and drank and went in the strength of that meat or that food forty days and forty nights unto Horeb the Mount of God. Now that's a long ways. That must have been some really good food. Some really good food, angel food. Forty days and forty nights. Elijah's. He- Where is he headed? Mount what? Horeb. Mount Horeb. Now, if you have a little Bible atlas or a Bible dictionary, you can pull it down and you can see what where Mount Horeb is. Mount Horeb is very interesting. Mount Horeb is the twin peak of Mount Sinai. We've come on a big loop back almost to St. Catharines, right? Here, he's all the way gone from Palestine, all the way from the tribe of Judah, the territory of Judah. He's crossed all the way across the desert to what we would call the Sinai Peninsula, at least according to the common view of where Mount Sinai is. And Mount Horeb is just right there next to Mount Sinai. Now, what happened at Mount Sinai? Do you remember? At Mount Sinai, there was a tremendous personal revelation of God to a human being. The only one recorded of this type in Scripture, right? We can read about it in Exodus 33 and Exodus 34, where Moses is on top of Mount Sinai, and he's pleading with God, and he says, I beseech you, I'm begging you, show me your glory. I want to see your presence. Moses and God were good friends, right? And Moses says, just manifest yourself in a real tangible way to me. I want to see you, not just hear your voice. I want to see you. And Moses is asking for this, right? And, and God gave Moses instruction. He was to hide himself in a crack in the rock. And his glory would pass by and he would see something of the character and the glory, the magnificence of God. Remember that story? And so that's what happened to Moses. Moses on top of Mount Sinai saw what human beings have not otherwise been privileged to see. Would you agree with me? Mount Sinai was a sacred spot in the Jewish mind. Mount Sinai was where the Ten Commandment Law had been given to the people. You remember, God had told the people, clean your tents, wash your clothes, make the whole camp ready. I'm going to meet with you. And the Bible says that the presence of God came down and covered the mountain like a cloud. This was... An amazing experience, the people of Israel were standing by their tents. I get this picture of some sort of a you know dress um, inspection in a military camp or something you know they 're all out ready to meet god and when they when when the mountain began shaking and the thunders and lightnings and the voice of God began to being being heard, the Bible says that they all ran back into their tents. God revealed himself not just to Moses but in a in a remarkable way, he demonstrated his power and his presence to the entire camp of Israel, and this is where Elijah is heading. Why? Why would he run to Mount Horeb? Could it be that Elijah, after living for three and a half years, On daily miracles, because that's what he had, right? Ravens coming every day, oil and and flour not failing every day. Miracles, 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 miracles. Every day he was getting more and more miracles. Could it be that he became desensitized to God's working in his life and he felt that he still needed something more of the presence and the power of God? Could that be? He's looking for something to go all the way to Mount Horeb. There's a lot of other places he could have gone. He's not running from God, evidently. He's running to God. He's looking for something in his spiritual experience he doesn't have. He's looking for something that will satisfy. After three and a half years of miracles. The Bible says that he came to verse 9. He came to a cave and stayed there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said unto him, Elijah, what are you doing here? And you notice Elijah's answer. Elijah's still trying to maybe convince God that he's All right, and he's being persecuted, and maybe he's not being appreciated as he should. He says in verse 10, I have been jealous, very jealous, for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and slain your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Verse 11 God says to Elijah, Go forth and stand upon the mountain before the Lord. Now, Just imagine yourself being out in the middle of this desert mountain scene by yourself. Not another soul around. You're standing out there in the entrance of your cave where you've taken up residence. And something tremendous happens. The Bible says, Behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent or tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. Can you imagine that kind of a wind? Have you ever seen that kind of a wind? I mean we're not talking about a hurricane force wind. The hurricane force wind will you know tear roofs off buildings and and uproot palm trees. But I don't think even a hurricane will split rocks and pull them off the mountain sides. This is wind. But notice Even though this was extremely impressive and powerful, and wouldn't you agree, miraculous? The Bible says the Lord was not in the wind. It says, but after the wind, an earthquake. There's probably very few things as unsettling as earthquakes. I was born like Pastor Mark in Southern California. And as an adult, when I went back to work in Southern California, I remember my first earthquake that I uh, experienced. You know There's things you just trust in life, and the ground is one of them. And when it starts moving, um, it seems as though there's nothing left to rest your hopes or your trust upon. And here there's a mighty earthquake. Can you imagine being in mountains up on a cliff, in a cave with an earthquake going on? Impressive. The Bible says the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, the Bible says in verse 12, a fire. God is using some of the most powerful forces of nature to try to speak to Elijah's heart. You want the dramatic? You want a demonstration of my power? I'll give it to you. A fire. The Bible says the Lord was not in the fire. And we know that during this wind, earthquake, and fire, Elijah had not stayed out in the mouth of the cave because we find the Bible saying again that Elijah went out in verse 13. He went out and stood at the entering of the cave a second time. So during this event, these these events, Elijah runs back into the cave for, for shelter. And the Bible says after the fire, there was a still small what? Still small voice. And in that still small voice, Elijah finally recognized the presence of God. He recognized the presence of God. When the Bible says it was a still small voice, in the English that doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? The small we can sort of understand. Sounds quiet, doesn't it? But what's a still voice? I mean, how do you describe sound with an adverb that, or, uh, yeah, an adverb that should describe motion, or an adjective that should describe lack of motion? We might say, right? I mean, how do you? How do you have a still, small voice? This word really intrigues me. It's the same word that is found in our scripture for today, in Psalm 46 and verse 10. Psalm 46 and verse 10. This is a quotation. One of those times when the inspired author is not just giving the thoughts of God, but giving the words of God, a verbatim. In many translations, you'll find it's set out in in either quotation marks or in an offset margin. Psalm 46 and verse 10 is a quotation from God and it says, Be still and know that I am God. I would propose to you today that in order to hear the still, small voice, we first have to be still ourselves. Does that make sense? Remember, we were talking, I think it may have been last week, about how the light of truth is progressive and If you want to stay in the light, you have to walk in the light, right? Well, in the same way, in order to hear a voice that is still and small, you have to be still yourself. Be still and know that I am God. The word here, still, you could describe it, and I think I've said this to you before, you could describe it as if it were like hay that's thrown into a fire. Have you seen that happen? Maybe... Not all of you have grown up on a farm, but you've probably thrown grass into a fire, made a campfire at some point, right? You throw pine needles or, or hay or straw, and, and you notice that hay or straw doesn't just disappear. It actually becomes sort of like a silken, uh, silken ash, but it just melts and conforms to whatever the container or the, the grate or drill or whatever that's, it's on, right? It loses its rigidity and it just relaxes. That's what this word still means. In fact, the translation for uh, Psalms 46.10 and some other translations I have here in your handout, the NASB, the New American Standard Bible says, Cease striving and know that I am God. The uh, contemporary English version says, Calm down and know that I am God. And the Moffat translation, James Moffat translated it as, Give in, God cries. Admit that I am God. If you want to hear the still small voice, you have to be still. Surrendered yourself. Now if we could just sort of summarize here. Elijah is running where? He's running to Mount Horeb. Is he running away from God? He's running to find, apparently to find a more significant manifestation of the presence of God and God instead of simply gratifying his wishes God teaches Elijah a lesson a principle which is a lesson for us living today in 2010 that lesson is this the power of God the 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 assurance of the presence of God is not to be found in dramatic miracles Are you with me? The power, the presence, the assurance of God is to be found in that still small voice, that time of communion of the soul with the divine. Our faith need not have miracles in order to be sustained we need not look for the more dramatic. Unfortunately, we're living in a world where Christianity today is obsessed with some greater experience. Are you with me? They want something more moving. They want a sermon more powerful. They want music more compelling. They want something more dramatic for the senses. They want something that will shock and awe them. And we as Christians sometimes, like Elijah, we fall into the same temptation. We want something dramatic in our experience and we're looking for it. We're wanting someday we're going to find it. And like Elijah, we can learn the principle that the most intimate and powerful testimony that God is with us is in the time we can spend one-on-one with him. Be still and know that I am God. Aren't you glad God dealt with Elijah as he did? Aren't you glad that God has such patience and tenderness and compassion for us? Aren't you glad that God gives that still small voice, gives each one of us equal access to that still small voice? Doesn't matter who we are, doesn't matter what miracles we've seen or haven't seen. All God says is stop resisting, stop running. Stop trying, stop striving striving so hard. Calm down, as one translation says. Be quiet. Know that I'm God. I don't know about you, but this story makes me want to spend more time simply opening my heart one-on-one with my maker and my creator. It makes me want to say, Lord, forgive me for trying to find spirituality or assurance in the dramatic. Instead, help me to find it in that quiet time when I can spend time with you. I want that, don't you? I want to hear that still small voice speaking to me. I may never have a life story like Elijah. I may never see fire come down from heaven or earthquakes. I may never see ravens feeding me or oil and flour that doesn't fail. You may not either. But each one of us can know for sure that our salvation, our faith, is secure in Jesus. Amen? Spend that quiet time with Him this week. Is that your desire? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for stories like this Discouraged Elijah when you tried to plant his feet on something more sure than simple experience of miracles. Lord, we thank you that in our times of discouragement, in our times of weakness, you are still seeking to do the same for us. You understand. You don't chastise your servants for becoming discouraged. You simply want us, after we've been fed and rested, you want us to learn lessons of quietude, of peacefulness, of stopping our attempts at spirituality and allowing you and a relationship one-on-one with you to give us the assurance of our faith. Today, Father, I just want to pray that you would set our feet on that solid foundation of your word. That in the time that each one here today spends in this coming week with you, that they might find their faith established by the word of God. That they might find their Christian experience endorsed by you, not because of the miraculous or the dramatic, but because of the quietness they feel in their heart as they hear your voice speaking to them. That's my desire, Lord, for them and for me. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.